Chapter 7 The Second Coming of Christ by Charles H. Spurgeon Four great events shine out brightly in our Savior's story. All Christian minds delight to dwell upon His birth, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. These make four rungs in that ladder of light, the foot of which is upon the earth, but the top of which reaches heaven. We could not afford to dispense with any one of those four events, nor would it be profitable for us to forget or underestimate the value of any one of them. That the Son of God was born of a woman creates in us the intense delight of a brotherhood springing out of a common humanity. That Jesus once suffered unto death for our sins and thereby made a full atonement for us is the rest and life of our spirit. The manger and the cross together are divine seals of love. That the Lord Jesus rose again from the dead is the warrant of our justification, and also a transcendently delightful assurance of the resurrection of all His people and of their eternal life in Him. Did He not say, Because I live, you will live also? John 14, 19. The resurrection of Christ is the morning star of our future glory. Equally delightful is the remembrance of His ascension. No song is sweeter than this, You have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Psalm 68, 18. Each one of those four events points to another, and they all lead up to it. The fifth link in the golden chain is our Lord's second and most glorious coming. Little is mentioned between His ascent and His descent. True, a rich history comes between them, but it lies in a valley between two stupendous mountains. We step from Alp to Alp as we journey in meditation from the ascension to the second coming. I say that each of the previous four events points to it. Had he not come a first time in humiliation, born under the law, he could not come a second time in amazing glory without a sin offering unto salvation. Because he died once, we rejoice that he dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him, and therefore he comes to destroy that last enemy whom he has already conquered. It is our joy as we think of our Redeemer as risen to feel that in consequence of His rising the trump of the archangel will assuredly sound for the awaking of all His slumbering people, when the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. As for His ascension, He could not descend a second time if He had not first ascended. But having perfumed heaven with His presence and prepared a place for His people, we may appropriately expect that He will come again and receive us unto Himself, that where He is, there we may be also. The Lord will come again. He will come again, for He has promised to return. We have His own word for it. That is our first reason for expecting Him. Among the last of the words that He spoke to His servant John are these, Yes, I am coming quickly. Revelation 22, 20. You may read it, I am coming quickly, I am even now upon the road, I am traveling as fast as wisdom allows, 
I am always coming and coming quickly. Some try to explain the second coming of Christ as though it meant the believer dying. You may, if you like, consider that Christ comes to his saints in death. In a certain sense, he does, but that sense will never bear out the full meaning of the teaching of the second coming with which the Scripture is full. No, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Christ will as certainly be here again in glory as he once was here in shame. He often assured his disciples that if he went away from them, he would come again to them, and he left us the Lord's Supper as a parting token to be observed until he comes. As often as we break bread, we are reminded of the fact that, though it is a most blessed ordinance, yet it is a temporary one, and it will cease to be celebrated when our absent Lord is once again present with us. He promised to die on the cross and to rise again the third day, and He kept His word. Let us believe His promise to return again. Moreover, the great scheme of redemption requires Christ's return. It is a part of that scheme that as He came once with a sin offering, He should come a second time without a sin offering. That as He came once to redeem, He should come a second time to claim the inheritance that He has so dearly bought. He came once that His heel might be bruised. He comes again to bruise the serpent's head, and with a rod of iron to dash His enemies in pieces as potter's vessels. He came once to wear the crown of thorns. He must come again to wear the diadem of universal dominion. He comes to the marriage supper. He comes to gather his saints together. He comes to glorify them with himself on this same earth where once he and they were despised and rejected of men. Be sure of this that the whole drama of redemption cannot be perfected without this last act of the coming of the King. The complete history of paradise regained requires that the new Jerusalem will come down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and it also requires that the heavenly bridegroom will come riding forth on his white horse, conquering and to conquer, King of kings and Lord of lords, amid the everlasting hallelujahs of saints and angels. It must be so. The man of Nazareth will come again. No one will spit in his face then, but every knee will bow before him. The crucified one will come again, and though the nail prints will be visible, no nails will fasten his dear hands then to the tree, but instead he will grasp the scepter of universal sovereignty, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah! And next, it is unquestionably asserted Behold, he is coming. Revelation 1 7. It's not perhaps he is coming or perhaps he may yet appear. Behold, he is coming is dogmatically asserted as an absolute certainty, which was realized by the heart of the man who proclaimed it. Behold, he is coming. All the prophets say that he will come. From Enoch down to the last prophet who spoke by inspiration, they declare, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Jude verse 14. You will not find one who has spoken with the authority of God 
who does not, either directly or by implication, assert the coming of the Son of Man when the multitudes born of woman will be summoned to his bar to receive the reward of their deeds. All the promises are laboring with this prognostication. Behold, he is coming. What is there to hinder Christ from coming? When I have studied and thought over this word, Behold, he is coming, yes, I have said to myself, Indeed he is. Who can hold him back? His heart is with his church on earth. In the place where he fought the battle, he desires to celebrate the victory. His delights are with the sons of men. All his saints are waiting for the day of his appearing, and he is waiting also. The very earth, in her sorrow and her groaning, yearns for his coming, which is to be her redemption. The creation is made subject to vanity for a little while, but when the Lord will come again, the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We might question whether he would come a second time if he had not already come the first time, but if he came to Bethlehem, be assured that his feet will yet stand upon Olivet. If he came to die, do not doubt that he will come to reign. If he came to be despised and rejected of men, why should we doubt that he will come to be admired by all of them who believe? When? When will he come? Ah, that's the question, the question of questions. He will come in his own time. He will come in due time. A fellow minister visiting me said as we sat together, I would like to ask you a lot of questions about the future. Oh, well, I replied, I cannot answer your questions, for I believe I know no more about it than you do. Uh, But, he said, what about the Lord's second coming? Will there not be the millennium first? I said, I cannot tell whether there will be the millennium first, but I know this, that the Scripture has left the whole matter, as far as I can see, with an intentional indistinctness, so that we may be always expecting Christ to come, and that we may be watching for His coming at any hour and every hour. I think that the millennium will commence after His coming, and not before it. I cannot imagine the kingdom with the king absent. It seems to me to be an essential part of the millennial glory that the king must then be revealed. At the same time, I am not going to lay down anything definite upon that point. He may not come for a thousand years. He may come tonight. The teaching of Scripture is, first of all, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Matthew 24, 44. It is clear that if it were revealed that a thousand years must elapse before he would come, we might very well go to sleep for that time, for we would have no reason to expect that he would come when Scripture told us he would not. Well, answered my friend, but when Christ comes, that will be the general judgment, will it not? Then I quoted these texts The dead in Christ will rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4 16. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Revelation 20, 5. I said, There is a resurrection from among the dead to which the Apostle Paul labored to attain. We will all rise, but the righteous will rise a thousand years before the ungodly. There is to be that interval of time between the one and the other. Whether that is the millennial glory or not, 
This testifier does not say, though he thinks it is. But this is the main point the Lord will come. We don't know when we are to expect his coming. We're not to lay down as absolutely fixed any definite prediction or circumstance that would allow us to go to sleep until that prediction was fulfilled or that circumstance was apparent. Will not the Jews be converted to Christ and restored to their land? inquired my friend. I replied, Yes, I think so. Surely they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And God will give them the kingdom and the glory, for they are his people, whom he has not cast away forever. The Jews, who are the natural olive branches, will still be grafted into their own olive tree again, and then will come the fullness of the Gentiles. Will that be before Christ comes or after? asked my friend. I answered, I think it will be after he comes, but whether or not, I am not going to commit myself to any definite opinion on the subject. To you, my friends, I say this read for yourselves and search for yourselves, for this still stands first and is the only thing that I will insist upon the Lord will come. He may come now, he may come tomorrow, he may come early in the night, the middle of the night, or he may wait until early morning. But the one word that he gives to us all is watch, so that whenever he comes, we may be ready for him and to say in the language of the hymn, Hallelujah! Welcome, welcome, Judge Divine! So far, I know that we are scriptural, and therefore perfectly safe in our statements about the Lord's second coming. His coming is to be vividly realized. I think I see the Apostle John. He is in the Spirit, but suddenly he seems startled into a keener and more solemn attention. His mind is more awake than usual though he was always a man of bright eyes that saw afar. We always compare him to the eagle for the height of his flight and the keenness of his vision, yet suddenly even he seems startled with a more astounding vision. He cries out, Behold, behold! He has caught sight of his Lord. He doesn't say, He will come by and by, but I can see him, he is now coming. He has evidently realized the second coming. He has so conceived of the second coming of the Lord that it has become a matter of fact to him, a matter to be spoken of and even to be written down. Behold, he is coming. Have you and I ever realized the coming of Christ as fully as this? Brothers and sisters, I invite you to this realization. I wish that we could go together in this until, as we leave the house, we say to one another, Behold, he is coming. One said to his friend, after the Lord had risen, The Lord is risen indeed, Luke 24, 34, King James Version. I want you now to feel just as certain that the Lord is coming indeed, and I would have you say as much to one another. Seen by all. Scripture Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Revelation 1, 7. I gather from this expression that it will be a literal appearing and an actual sight. If the second coming was to be a spiritual manifestation, to be perceived by the minds of men, then the phraseology would be, every mind will perceive him. But it is not so. We read, 
every eye will see him. Now, the mind can behold the spiritual, but the eye can only see that which is distinctly material and visible. The Lord Jesus Christ will not come spiritually, for in that sense he is always here, but he will come really and substantially, for every eye will see him, even those unspiritual eyes that gazed on him with hate and pierced him. Do not go away and dream and say to yourself, Oh, there is some spiritual meaning about all this. Do not destroy the teaching of the Holy Spirit by the idea that there will be a spiritual manifestation of the Christ of God, and that a literal appearing is out of the question. That would alter the record. The Lord Jesus will come to earth a second time as literally as he came a first time. The same Christ who ate a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb after he had risen from the dead, the same who said, Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Luke 24 39. This same Jesus with a material body is to come in the clouds of heaven. In the same manner as he went up, he will come down. He will be literally seen. The words cannot be honestly read in any other way. Every eye will see him. Yes, I do literally expect to see my Lord Jesus with these eyes of mine, even as St. Job expected, who fell asleep long ago, believing that though the worms devour his body, yet in his flesh he would see God, whom his eyes would see for himself and not another. There will be a real resurrection of the body, though many people today doubt it. It will be such a resurrection that we will see Jesus with our own eyes. We will not find ourselves in a shadowy, dreamy land of floating fictions, where we may perceive but cannot see. We will not be airy nothings, mysterious, vague, impalpable, but we will literally see our glorious Lord, whose appearing will not be a phantom show or shadow dance. There will never be a day more real than the day of judgment, never a sight more true than the Son of Man upon the throne of His glory. Will you take this statement home, that you may feel the force of it? We are getting too far away from facts nowadays, and too much into the realm of myths and notions. Every eye will see Him. In this there will be no delusion. Note well that He is to be seen by all kinds of living men. Every eye will see Him, the king and the peasant, the most learned and the most ignorant. Those that were blind before will see when He appears. I remember a man born blind who loved our Lord most intensely, and he was praising glory that his eyes had been reserved for his Lord. He said, The first person whom I will ever see will be the Lord Jesus Christ. The first sight that greets my newly opened eyes will be the Son of Man in His glory. Small pleasure is this to eyes that are full of filthiness and pride. They do not care for this sight, and yet they must see it whether they want to or not. They have so far shut their eyes to good things, but when Jesus comes they must see Him. They will not be able to hide themselves nor hide Him from their eyes. They will dread the sight, but it will come upon them, even as the sun shines upon the thief who delights in the darkness. They will be obliged to acknowledge in dismay that they behold the Son of Man. 
they will be so overwhelmed with the sight that there will be no denying it. He will be seen by those who have been long since dead. What a sight that will be for Judas, and for Pilate, and for Caiaphas, and for Herod! What a sight it will be for those who, in their lifetime, said that there was no Savior, and no need of one, or that Jesus was a mere man, and that His blood was not a propitiation for sin. Those that scoffed and reviled Him have long since died, but they will all rise again and rise to this heritage among the rest, that they will see Him whom they blasphemed sitting in the clouds of heaven. Prisoners are troubled at the sight of the judge. The trumpet of the court brings no music to the ears of criminals. But you must hear it, O unrepentant sinner! Even in your grave you must hear the voice of the Son of God, and live, and come forth from the tomb, to receive the things done in your body, whether they were good or bad. Death cannot hide you, nor the vault conceal you, nor rottenness and corruption deliver you. You are bound to see in your body the Lord who will judge both you and your friends. Denying, Living, Looking We read in Scripture, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Titus 2, 11-14. You see, there are three words before you, deny, live, and looking. When the Holy Spirit comes into the heart, He finds that we are conceited, puffed up. We have learned lessons of worldly wisdom and carnal policy, which we need to unlearn and deny. What do we have to deny? First, we have to deny ungodliness. That is a lesson that many of you have a great need to learn. Listen to the working man. Oh, they say, we have to work hard. We can't think about God or religion. This is ungodliness. The grace of God teaches us to deny this. We come to loathe such atheism. Others are prospering in the world, and they cry, If you had as much business to look after as I have, you would have no time to think about your soul or another world. Trying to battle with the competition of the times leaves me no opportunity for prayer or Bible reading. I have enough to do with my journal and ledger. This is also ungodliness. The grace of God leads us to deny this. We abhor such forgetfulness of God. God cannot be forgotten with impunity. If we treat Him as if He were nothing and leave Him out of our calculations for life, we will make a fatal mistake. Friend, there is a God, and as surely as you live, you are accountable to Him. When the Spirit of God comes with the grace of the gospel, He removes our habitual ungodliness and causes us to deny it with joyful earnestness. We next deny worldly desires, that is, the lusts of the present world or age. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are always with us. Wherever the grace of God comes effectively, it makes the loose living man deny the desires of the flesh. 
It causes the man who lusted after gold to conquer his greediness. It brings the proud man away from his ambitions. It trains the idle man to diligence, and it sobers the reckless mind that cared only for the frivolities of life. The grace of God has made us deny the prevailing philosophies, glories, sayings, and fashions of this present world. But then, brothers, you cannot be complete with a merely negative religion. You must have something positive. And so the next word is live, that we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Observe, brothers, that the Holy Spirit expects us to live in this present world, and therefore we are not to exclude ourselves from it. This age is the battlefield in which the soldier of Christ is to fight. Society is the place in which Christianity is to exhibit the graces of Christ. It's of no use for you to scheme to escape from it. You are bound to face this torrent and buffet all its waves. If the grace of God is in you, that grace is meant to be displayed, not in a select and secluded retreat, but in this present world. This life is described in three ways. You are first to live sensibly, that is, in your own life, sensibly in all your eating and your drinking, and in the indulgence of all bodily appetites, that goes without saying. You are to live soberly in all your thinking, all your speaking, all your acting. There is to be sobriety in all your worldly pursuits. You are to have yourself well in hand, you are to be self-restrained. The man who is disciplined by the grace of God becomes thoughtful, considerate, and self-contained, and he is no longer tossed about by passion or swayed by prejudice. As to his fellow man, the believer lives righteously. I cannot understand that Christian who can do a dirty thing in business. If you mean to go the way of the devil, then say so, and take the consequences. But if you profess to be servants of God, deny all partnership with unrighteousness. Dishonesty and falsehood are the opposites of godliness. A Christian man may be poor, but he must live righteously. He may lack sharpness, but he must not lack integrity. A Christian profession without uprightness is a lie. Grace must discipline us to righteous living. Toward God, we are told that we are to be godly. Every man who has the grace of God in him, indeed and certainly, will think much of God, and will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God will enter into all his calculations. God's presence will be his joy. God's strength will be his confidence. God's providence will be his inheritance. God's glory will be the chief end of his being, and God's law will be the guide of his conversation. Now, if the grace of God, which has appeared so plainly to all men, has really come with its sacred discipline upon us, it is teaching us to live in this threefold manner. Once more, there is looking as well as living. One work of the grace of God is to cause us to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. This hope is not of debt, but of grace. Though our Lord will give us a reward, it will not be according to the law of works. The Lord comes, and in the coming of the Lord lies the great hope of the believer, his great stimulus to overcome evil, and his main incentive 
to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. Oh, to be found blameless in the day of the manifestation of our Lord! God grant us this! Be ready! I beg you to get ready to meet our returning Lord. What is the way to be ready to meet Jesus? If it's the same Jesus that went away from us who is coming, then let us be doing what He was doing before He went away. If it is the same Jesus that is coming, we cannot possibly put ourselves into a posture of which He will better approve than by going about doing good. If you would meet Him with joy, serve Him with earnestness. If the Lord Jesus Christ were to come today, I would like Him to find me at my studying, praying, or preaching. Would you not like Him to find you in your Sunday school, in your class, or out there at the corner of the street preaching, or doing whatever you have the privilege of doing in His name? Would you meet your Lord in idleness? Do not think of it. I called one day on one of my church members, and she was whitening the front steps. She got up all in confusion and said, Oh, dear sir, I didn't know you were coming today, or I would have been ready. I replied, Dear friend, you could not be in a better appearance than you are. You are doing your duty like a good housewife, and may God bless in that. She had no money to spare for a servant, and she was doing her duty by keeping the home tidy. I thought she looked more beautiful with her bucket beside her than if she had been dressed according to the latest fashion. I said to her, When the Lord Jesus Christ comes suddenly, I hope He will find me doing as you were doing, namely, fulfilling the duty of the hour. I want you all to get to your buckets without being ashamed of them. Serve the Lord in some way or other. Serve Him always. Serve Him intensely. Serve Him more and more. Go tomorrow and serve the Lord at the counter, in the workshop, or in the field. Go and serve the Lord by helping the poor and the needy, the widow and the fatherless. Serve Him by teaching the children, especially by endeavoring to train your own children. Go and show the drunkard that there is hope for him in Christ, or let the fallen woman know that Jesus can restore her. Do what Jesus has given you the power to do. The Delay But the notion of the delay of Christ's coming is always harmful. However you arrive at it, whether it be by studying prophecy or in any other way. Scripture If that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Luke 12 45-46. Do not, therefore, get the idea that the Lord delays His coming, and that He will not or cannot come now. It will be far better for you to stand on the tiptoe of expectation, and to be rather disappointed to think that He does not come. I don't wish you to be shaken in mind so as to act fanatically or foolishly, as certain people did when they went out in the woods with ascension clothing on, so as to go straight up all of a sudden. Do not fall into any of those absurd ideas that have led people to leave a chair vacant at the table, and put an empty plate out because the Lord might come and want it, and try to avoid all other superstitious nonsense. 
To stand stargazing at the prophecies with your mouth wide open is just the wrong thing. It's far better to go on working for your Lord, getting yourself and your service ready for His appearing, and cheering yourself all the while with this thought, While I am at work, my Master may come. Before I get weary, my Master may return. While others are mocking me, my Master may appear. And whether they mock or applaud is nothing to me. I live before the great taskmaster's eye and do my service knowing that he sees me, and expecting that eventually he will reveal himself to me, and then he will reveal me and my right intention to misrepresenting men. May the Lord keep you waiting, working, and watching, so that when he comes you may have the blessedness of entering upon some larger, higher, and nobler service than you could accomplish now for which you are preparing by the lowlier and more arduous service of this world. God bless you, beloved, and if you do not know my Lord, and therefore do not look for His appearing, remember that He will come whether you look for Him or not, and when He comes you will have to stand at His judgment seat. One of the events that will follow His coming will be your being summoned before His judgment seat, and how will you answer Him then? How will you answer him if you refused his love and turned a deaf ear to the invitations of his mercy? If you have delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed, how will you answer him? If you stand speechless, your silence will condemn you, and the king will say, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. Matthew 22, 13. God grant that we may all believe in the Lord Jesus unto life eternal, and then wait for His appearing from heaven for His love's sake. Amen.